You don't have to be a renowned author and professor like Brene Brown to understand what she's talking about, right? Because pain, loss, and grief, it touches every one of our lives. And these past couple Sundays um, have been heavy, to say the least, walking through this book of Habakkuk. And we've been on a journey seeking to hear from God's word on how do we process brokenness through faith. And we couldn't have found a better prophet to do that with than Habakkuk. Um, Even though he lived around 600 years before the birth of Jesus, he gets it. That's what I love about Habakkuk. I mean, we've all probably been there at one time or another where, and yes, this is where Habakkuk is, where everything in his life feels like it's spinning. And to make sense of that, we actually need to go 300 years before the life of Habakkuk, just a little bit further in which we find God's once promised nation of Israel in turmoil, and they have a civil war. And one united kingdom divides into two, and the southern kingdom, Judah, is Habakkuk's home. He's a mus- Habakkuk is a musician prophet, um, and so he spends his days in the temple in Jerusalem, and he sees his community around him unraveling. What led to this? Well, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Well, just before 600 B.C., um, The last good king of Judah, Josiah, dies in battle. And his son, Jehoiakim, takes the throne. I know this is a bit of a history lesson, but stick with me. It helps make the context here. His son, Jehoiakim, takes the throne. But Jehoiakim, he's nothing like Josiah. He doesn't pursue after God. And what we actually find with Jehoiakim is he cares nothing for God. He cares nothing about justice. He cares nothing about rightness or righteousness. He cares nothing about the vulnerable, the poor. And Judah speeds in its decline towards death as a nation. It's at this low point, this moral nadir, that we actually find Habakkuk speaking. But he doesn't do what we find most of the other prophets doing in Scripture. Most of the other prophets, what comes to your mind, right? It's the prophet who runs into the community and confronts the people of God and says, look at what you've done, and now God has come and is just judgment to judge his people. That's not what Habakkuk does. Instead, Habakkuk audaciously confronts God. And he comes with this symphony of frustration in which he actually gives voice to our confusion. He comes and in his words, he articulates our our hunger to make sense of life and loss. And when he confronts God, he comes with this no-nonsense bluntness of a prophet that would probably make any street preacher blush, okay? It's, it's pretty intense language to God for us. And just to kind of review this symphony movement here, if you look back, we've been going through Habakkuk in chapter one, that's the first movement of this symphony. What we find in chapter one is intense laments, these moans in the minor key to God. And, and Habakkuk, he questions God's plan to use the audacious nation, this bloodthirsty nation of Babylon, to judge Judah. Not judge Judy, but judge Judah. And he comes in and he begins to describe Babylon. Babylon, this is a nation that skins their captives alive. They use the heads of their warriors as art pieces and they take women as sex slaves for their community. And worse, and on and on. And this is the community, this is the nation that God is sending. And so Habakkuk asks audaciously in this lament, my God, aren't you better than this? Then we get to chapter two, and the second movement of this symphony, the music slows a little bit, and God tells Habakkuk he's going to have to wait. 
He's going to have to wait. And this funeral dirge begins to build up. If you look in chapter 2, over and over again, you find the word woe, woe, woe. And over and over again, it builds as the warning to an abusive empire that their, their coming death is right around the corner. And he tells Habakkuk, justice is coming. It may not come tomorrow, Habakkuk. It may not even come in your lifetime, but it's coming. And when it comes, it'll never be too late. And now we come to the third movement. Habakkuk's on this journey. We come to the third movement, and it builds to a crescendo here at the end. And the shift, there's a shift in the tune of the prophet and what he's saying. I mean, look, if you look back in the first movement, just quickly, chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. And then we get to the third movement. Chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. What's changed? It's not Habakkuk's circumstances. If anything, Habakkuk's got greater clarity that it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, and it might not get better in his lifetime. So what has changed? Well, Habakkuk, he's discovered, and he's going to unlock for us the secret of a resilient joy. And that's what he's going to let us know about today. Look, I don't have to tell you that the world is messed up, right? What we need to hear is that even though, even in our downtown, many of the homeless are mentally unstable and very often frequently overlooked, and yet joy is possible. We, we realize and we, we experience loved ones lost and, and orphans who are growing in number, and yet joy is possible. Racial segregation continues now with boundaries under the surface, harder to navigate, more complex, and yet joy is possible. Businesses many times will still look to the bottom line rather than communal flourishing. Ebola continues to take countless lives. The church is persecuted across the globe, and yet joy is possible. But how? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? How? Well, this morning, we'll come to see that in the Christian faith, there's a surprising conclusion. That those with the greatest frustration and anger over evil are actually given the greatest opportunity for the most resilient joy. Joy is possible when we take three critical steps. Sounds too good to be true. You probably weren't looking for a three-step sermon. I know. Okay, but let's hang in there with me and let's look at the text together. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 3 of Habakkuk. If you're starting to sweat because you don't know where Habakkuk is and you're not using a smart device, just go to the table of contents. No one really knows where Habakkuk is off the top of their head, so you're in good company. Also, if you're using one of our community Bibles, you can find this passage on page number 510. Well, as we listen to Habakkuk's prayer in response to everything that God has said in these first two movements, these first two chapters, we find the first step is that joy is possible when we accept how messed up life is which I know sounds counterintuitive at first, and for many of us, that's countercultural, but stay with me. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Habakkuk says, I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Remember, in these first two movements, God came with heavy words, and now 
Habakkuk is almost going into a full-blown anxiety attack. His body is weak. His bones feel brittle. He tries to take a step and he stumbles over his own feet. His lips are quivering. He's awestruck at what is about to happen. And in verse 17, he goes on to then talk about the starvation that is going to come upon Judah when Babylon uh, brings siege against Jerusalem. And just to be clear, this siege, this destruction of Judah does come. Um, This isn't an irrational fear. Hey, get hold of yourself, Habakkuk. No, this is really awful that's about to come on Judah. And what you find is in 597 BC, Jerusalem falls to Babylon and so begins the dark days of exile. So this is three years after 600 BC. Dark days of exile, slavery, and ridicule for Judah. This is a heavy time. He has every right to be utterly terrified. And what he doesn't do is put his head in the sand. Rather, he faces the facts that are brutal, and he is resilient and not becoming delusional and just ignoring the reality that's around him. Admiral um, Jim Stockdale, he was a United States military officer. He was held prisoner for eight years during the Vietnam War before he was released. And while he was held captive, Stockdale underwent at least 20 times of intense, intense um, torture with no rational reason, actually, that he would be freed to see his wife ever again. But it's interesting, after he was released, he was interviewed. And they asked him, you know, what were you thinking when you were in there? And he says, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end. But then he says something next that has been coined the Stockdale Paradox. While Stockdale, he had this outstanding resiliency, he points out that it was always the most optimistic of his prison mates who didn't make it out alive. Listen to what he says. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. See, the optimists, they failed to accept the brutal facts of their reality and how dark it was. They lived in a dream world, hoping that reality would just kind of fix itself. And even though the self-delusion may have seemed like it was helping in the short term, as soon as reality broke back in, it was too brutal to handle. And they'd become discouraged to the point of death. Habakkuk and Stockdale, they actually have something in common. They they acknowledge the brutal facts of of life, and they accept how messed up life is. Real joy isn't possible in a world of pixies and fairy tales. Instead, real joy happens in the real world. And sometimes when the real world wakes us up, we find it's still a nightmare. And it's still really ugly. And we can't live in denial. So let me ask you this morning, are you facing the brutal facts in your own life? Are you facing the brutal facts in your own life? Because before you can have authentic joy, you have to be honest about the reality of your pain. If we return to Brene Brown, who was shown here at the beginning uh, of our time, in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, she writes on this very concept. Um, in her study, she's discovered how we cannot selectively numb emotions, even though we try through certain activities like entertainment, through certain activities like uh, consumption or substance abuse of food, alcohol, drugs. And this is what she writes. I knew this was critically important finding in my research. 
So I spent several hundred interviews trying to better understand the consequences of numbing and how taking the edge off behaviors, that's all one phrase, is related to addiction. Here's what I learned. One, most of us engage in behaviors, consciously or not, that help us to numb and take the edge off of vulnerability, pain, and discomfort. Two, addiction can be described as chronically and compulsively numbing and taking the edge off of feelings. We cannot selectively numb feelings. And then three, when we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive ones. Did you get that? That's critical. This is why this is so important for joy. When we, when we seek to numb grief, pain, fear, disappointment, sadness, then we can't help but also numb celebration, excitement, encouragement, and even joy. So many of us, we, we believe the lie that if we can just numb it for a second, then tomorrow everything will work itself out. But it's just not the way life works. God had revealed this to Habakkuk way before Brene had revealed it to us, but it's beautiful to see how Brene's research and scientific study affirm God's word in this reality. Habakkuk, he's brutally honest. We see this throughout in his lament to God over the brokenness of the universe, and God takes it. Why? Because he knows it's critical on the path to Habakkuk's joy. It's critical. Like Brene Brown said in the video earlier, I mean, faith is not like an epidural that's going to take away all the pain, but it's much more like a midwife that sits beside you and says, push, or so I hear. And it's here, you know, we, we begin to discover the secret of joy. In this world, the heights of joy are only accessible to those who are willing to, to traverse through the valleys of lament. That's the only way it's possible. Joy is possible when we accept how messed up our life is. My life is. Your life is. So are you facing the brutal facts in your own life? But even though Habakkuk, he sees these brutal facts, they shake him up to his core. He intentionally looks at them within a wider framework, which leads us to our second step. Joy is possible when we retell the story with expectation. So what do I mean? Look at chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk knows God's just. His, his justice is coming against Judah. It's going to come, and it's not going to be thwarted. And yet he asks God to remember, to remember his mercy in the past. What past? Well, Habakkuk, he's heard the rich history of God's deliverance time and again towards Israel. You can imagine sitting on his mother's lap when he was just a, a wee lad, just a little fella, and his mother would sing the songs of deliverance about what God had done in the history of Israel. And then he would go with his father to, to, to the synagogue or to the temple and they would unroll the scrolls and they would hear the Torah read and they would remember the stories of God's deliverance through the Exodus and maybe even to what God had done through Joshua. And then as he grew up even older, I mean, his whole language and culture revolved around him memorizing larger texts and larger chunks of the Torah and digging deeper. And as a musician, prophet, of course, he would know these stories. He knows the story and I think what's so fascinating about it is that he seeks to then retell it to the God who did 
these acts of mercy. Um, can you imagine sitting across the table from J.R.R. Tolkien and saying, hey, and start playing out the Lord of the Rings. Did you realize this is how it ends? Um, it seems kind of ridiculous, but it's so important on our journey to joy. So look in verse three. Habakkuk begins by recounting to God how God himself heard the cries of Israel and brought redemption even out of slavery in Egypt. In the southern region of Palestine, there's an area called Taman or the Paran Mountains. Um, and this is where Mount Sinai is located. And so he's remembering even when they crossed the Red Sea and God met them at Mount Sinai to prepare them for the promised land. Then as they entered the land, a land that's been promised to generations, to their ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and on and on. I mean, this was the land that has been critical to God's promises. And now it's going to be lost to the Babylonians. And Habakkuk recounts time and time again how God had pulled all of his resources of creation to actually fight for Israel. The old warring nations you see mentioned there in verse 7, Kishon and Midian, they begin to tremble as they remember themselves what God had done in history through these nations and in these nations for Israel. So this story... Habakkuk cries out that God would remember and and revive. This is the story that he holds on to and he says, make it live again in my day. Not just something I remember, but revive it. Give it life. May we see it happen in our day. And it leads each of us to ask the question, whose story are you telling? Whose story are you telling? In the midst of darkness, Habakkuk tells the story of God's deliverance. You know, already as I sit with my daughter, Ava, um, you know, we'll, I'll grab two different books and she'll be sitting on my lap. She's not yet 10, well, she's not yet 11 months, soon to come on 11, 11 months, and she can't read yet. Um, but what we'll do is we'll sit her in my lap and then I'll hold up two books and I'll say, which book do you want to be read to you? And she looks at both of them and then it's the cutest thing. She like reaches out and grabs one. Um, and then I pull it and I start reading it, you know, and she just loves it. She has her favorites already. I can already tell you some of her favorite books that she has. And we all have our favorite stories, don't we? The one placed before us that we naturally grab towards. When life begins to crumble around you and you feel abandoned, when you feel forgotten, when you feel abused or lost, whose story are you telling? Is it a story where God's the police officer ready to set you straight? Is it the the story of the overbearing boss who you can never seem to please? Or is it the story of the parent who forces you to prove that you're worthy of his love? Or is it a God who remembers mercy? One who hears and knows your cries more intimately than even you can express. In the face of death and in the face of brokenness, one of the most subversive actions of joy is telling the right story. It's telling the right story. Now remember, this isn't ignoring the brutal facts, okay? But it's telling them within the wider framework of a God who delivers and how he's worked and what he's done in history and what he's promised he will do in the future and seeing the consistency of his character throughout time and telling yourself the story. Over the past couple weeks, um, as we've been in Habakkuk, we frequently highlighted the old spirituals. Um, And another reason they're so brilliant These old spirituals is because they were a way of telling themselves the right story of joy, the subversive story of freedom, God's story. 
When those in power would say African-American slaves were less than human, they would sing the story. When the whips would lash against their backs and their children sold into slavery, they would sing the story. But not the story of the plantation. No. It was the subversive story of God's mercy. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell all pharaohs to let my people go. When Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand. Let my people go. You see, it's only when we remember what has happened that we're able to reimagine what can happen. It's only when we remember what has happened that we're now enabled to reimagine what can happen. Because if God's ways are everlasting, then his mercy is forever coming, forever flowing. And it's the story that is continuing to be written for you and in you. Joy is possible when we retell the story with expectation. Whose story are you telling? Now, at the end of the day, as important as, you know, facing the brutal facts and putting them within the wider framework, if we don't take this third step, we'll find ourselves so wallowing in sadness, unable to escape. This third step is critical. You see, joy is possible only when we choose the Savior who fights for us. When we choose the Savior who fights for us. Look at what Habakkuk says in chapter 3, verse 13 to God, about God. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. It's a brutal picture, but a picture of God's justice and a picture of his mercy all in one. You see, Habakkuk, he has this steady conviction that percolates as he remembers the story, as he remembers history that God is a God who will ultimately always fight for his people and not against them. Yeah, Babylon's coming. Yes, God sent Babylon, which seems audacious. Habakkuk's had words with God about this. But it's not going to be God's last word. And it's here that no matter the circumstances that may come, whether fear that shakes him to his bones or famine as he looks out at the land, that he holds on to God as the source Because he is the savior who fights for his people. And then Habakkuk, he finishes, right, with this great crescendo of joy in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Yet, and that's that, that one little conjunction. That's a game changer. Yet, no matter what comes, you put anything before that yet. It, it, it won't change what comes after that yet. Anything. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So how does Habakkuk's knobby knees, trembling legs, shuddering lips, um, brittle bones, how do they become these agile and sure feet of the deer that are actually able to traverse the rocky crags of the Judean landscape, the hill country? Has he forgotten lament? Has he just pushed injustice out of his mind? No. Instead, Habakkuk has, for one, learned that in this world, as it currently is, joy and lament are a mixed bag. Mirzlof Wolf, um, a longtime professor at Yale, um, who has his own personal stories of suffering, he did a most recent exploration of joy, and he's just digging deeper into this 
idea of joy. And he writes in a most recent article, to complete the sketch of joy, I need add that for the most part, we don't experience joy as an all or nothing affair. It's neither a matter of having a perfect joy or no joy at all, nor is it a matter of joy either overriding all our emotions or of it being entirely absent. Whether joy is intense or gentle, simple or complex, episodic or enduring, joy is mostly partial and overlaps with other emotions. As the experience of joy at a funeral of one who lived life well attests, we can rejoice and grieve at the same time. And this can be so liberating because it's in this place where we can be broken by injustice but not enslaved in forever sadness. It's in this space that we're free to rejoice in God's good gifts but not at the expense of having to cut off the realities and the awareness of injustice that sits around us. In our own lives, when we, when we hear the news stories, when we experience loss ourselves or wrestle through loneliness, the Christian faith provides a space for the most heart-wrenching of lament and the most resilient of joy to reside together. A place for the most heart-wrenching of lament and the most resilient of joy to actually reside together because we know it will not always be this way. And it's only because this joy is secure in God himself, not our circumstances. Look again at verse 18. There's so much to mine here. In verse 18, Habakkuk rejoices in what? In the Lord. Where does he take his joy from? Where does he go looking for it? In the God of my salvation. Yes, he is a God who will act for Habakkuk's salvation, but he doesn't have his trust in the action, but in the person who acts. Small distinction, but huge. And what we find was, if you just move right down there to verse 19, that first line, God the Lord is my strength. This word for strength in the Hebrew, it's not the normal word for physical might or strength. Actually, if you translated it literally, it's army. And what you would find if you translated it in this phrase is, God the Lord is my strength army. This, this isn't some temporary strength that I need to build up, that I need to develop, that I need to support in myself, but rather by the sheer strength within God himself, like an army at the gates, he fights for us. And he will outlast any opposing regime, power, or problem that we have going on in our lives because he fights for his people. And there's a beautiful confirmation of God doing this actually in the storyline of history. Strong and mighty Babylon indeed does fall and not too soon after they had actually conquered Judah. Just as God had promised, they fall to Persia and the exiled people of God find themselves invited to participate in a new exodus. A new exodus out of Babylon back to Israel because Cyrus, the leader of Persia, frees them to return. We must remember what has happened if we are ever to reimagine what can happen. God always fights for his people. The secret to resilient joy is in a source that is reliable. And so we need to ask the question of ourselves, so where are you looking for your strength? Who are you hoping is fighting for your joy? Is it a, is it a, a pretty healthy bank account? Do we find our security that comes from a robust 401k 
a defense from hurt and loneliness by finally finding that perfect spouse? Is it when you have all your answers or all the questions of your questions answered? Is it, is it when you finally get that next promotion or that next good grade? I mean, how can we know? How can we know where we're actually looking for our strength because we're really self-delusional a lot of times? Well, I think one of the best places that it's hardest for us to actually guard um, and to be self-delusional is in our dreams. Uh, our greatest worries force their way forward in our worst nightmares, don't they? So I want you to think back to what was maybe one of your most recent and worst nightmares. Because it's here you'll discover where you're looking for your strength. Because in your nightmare, you always will find yourself insecure and stumbling when you don't have it. And you don't have your guard up. You know, so for me, my worst nightmare that I have annually, and maybe if I'm honest, quarterly, and if I'm really honest, weekly, is, is not being prepared to preach. <laughs> and I get up and I look stupid, I'm undisciplined, I look like a fool, I don't have answers. And without fail, it always starts with me sleeping through my alarm, right? And then I wake up and I, I'm in such a hurry that not only do I not have time to prepare for the sermon, but I don't have time for clothes. And so... <laughs> But for some reason in my dream, I think the most rational thing is just get there. So I get up in front of everyone, half naked, maybe more, um, trying not to give you visuals. You know, and, and I'm standing up there, and I look down, and I just have a blank piece of paper, and I don't even have my Bible, and I look up, <laughs> sweating, and everybody's just appalled. You know, they've got their eyes going, nice, Gabe, nice. And, and then I wake up, and I realize I was sweating. Um, and, and what happens is I usually then go work on my sermon. Um, no, I'm kidding, kind of. Uh, but look, I, I know intimately that life is broken, okay? And some of you this morning may feel like your life is broken beyond repair. Joy is possible when we choose the only Savior who fights for us, who fights for us. He takes the initiative. And what's so beautiful is how he fights for us by the time we get to the first century, we see God do something that no one was expecting. Everybody was expecting some sort of Messiah, some sort of political figure, but God become flesh? No one was looking for that. No one had the expectations or the schema to think of that. And in Jesus Christ, we're actually showed, shown the, the lengths at which God wants to express his love for us, how far he will go to fight for us. He's always had a plan to deal with our greatest enemy. And our greatest enemy and our greatest battle isn't out in the world somewhere over there, but it's actually in the recesses of our heart right here. And because of his great love, he goes the distance. There's one author in the New Testament who writes that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, went to the cross. Whose joy? Definitely his, but also ours, that Jesus went to our cross to destroy sin and death without having to destroy us. And this is the beauty. He dies our death that we deserve that yet, no matter what comes before that, yet we might live. And then three days later, he rises again to give a joy that knows no end. This is our saving God. Do you want resilient joy? You've got to take all three steps. You can't just face the facts or you're stuck in a quagmire of depression. You can't just hold on to a story without holding on to the one 
who fights for us. Joy is possible when we accept how messed up our lives really are, how messed up we really are, and being honest about that, and our sin-soaked reality. And then we retell the story of God's redemption, most evidently displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we tell it to ourselves, even with expectation, holding on to the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man who fights for us by dying and rising again. I mean, will you face the brutal facts in your life? Whose story are you telling? Where are you looking for your strength? Who are you hoping is fighting for your joy better than God can? Because in the gospel, no matter what comes our way, no matter the circumstances, we have the resounding refrain, and yet joy is possible. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for Habakkuk and how you've spoken in and through him to actually speak to yourself and to guide us on how we're to navigate the brokenness of this world as we approach a holy, good God in honesty towards joy. And as I think about the movements of this book, I can't help but just be so thankful for the climax of joy that you provide. Help us, God, to be honest about who we are and the way our world is. May you give us boldness and humility to accept that. May you also give us thoughtfulness to retell the story of the gospel to ourselves. And by the work of your spirit, may we consistently choose the one who fights for us and give up all these counterfeits, these smaller armies that can never accomplish what you, almighty God, can do. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before Jesus went to the cross, he gave those who follow him a meal, a meal to remember the one who has fought for us and continues to fight for us. It's in this meal we proclaim the gospel to our senses of taste and touch and smell. It's a unique gift to the church, for especially you tactile learners. And as we hear this, we remember through broken bread, Christ's body broken for us. Through common poor juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new here, let me walk you through just how we do this together. First, we ask that, one, you don't have to be a member at Christ's community to partake in the Lord's Supper, but we do ask that Jesus Christ be your Lord and Savior before you come and remember. Also, if you are here and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, we're really glad you're here. Keep asking questions and take this time to pray that God would continue to reveal himself to you. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. So continue to do that in this time. If you do come, You can come down one of the two aisles, circle back to one of the two communion stations. You'll partake in groups of four to six. Take the bread, dip it in the juice, and partake together. If you have a child here who is yet to proclaim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we offer a blessing in the same vein that Jesus blesses the little ones when they approach him. At this time, before we come, let us remember the words of institution that Jesus has handed down to us. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you're ready, please come.